I'm John Perry, and this is Selected Pros. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Selected Pros. Very excited about today's episode. Um, I got to sit down with Bud Smith. He's an author from Jersey City. His books include Double Bird, Work, Dust Bunny City, Calm Face, F-250, and many more. Uh, he's a fantastic novelist. He is a fantastic short story writer as well. Excitingly, uh, one of his recent stories titled Violets was published in the Paris Review. I'll post a link in the episode description. Definitely recommend giving it a read. We discuss it at length in the episode. Bud takes us from draft one of Violets all the way through his final draft and the thought that went into it and the revision and how it changed. Very helpful for those of us with any interest in writing or storytelling. Um, one of the many valuable pieces of our discussion, we talk about being such a prolific artist uh, while holding down a job in, in heavy construction, as Bud does. We talk about comedy. We talk about his origin story. We talk about a lot more. Sit back, relax, enjoy, prepare to learn, prepare to laugh. And, you know, as always, feel free to reach out, selectedpros at protonmail.com or uh, at selectedpros on Twitter. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the episode. Enjoy. So when you started out writing, did you immediately incorporate humor? Is it something you grew into? Yeah, yeah. Humor was was the whole reason. I never really, um, I never really took writing very seriously, and I kind of probably still don't take it very seriously. I mean, if you start off right from the beginning with with it's okay to be a clown. No matter how seriously you take being a clown, you're still a clown. And I'm perfectly okay with that. Um, when I had first, when I had first realized that people like my writing uh, at all was in, was in middle school. We had, uh, we had to write like, you know, you had to write a little, a little page or two about a current event each week. So you'd have to like take something from the newspaper and you'd have to write down what happened. And I would always take a current event um, and I would, I would start writing about the current event and then I would have like someone, it would turn it into fiction too, where it would be like, this person had one beer and one, one, uh, you know, took a weed or whatever and just went on like a, like a murderous rampage <laughs> and like just drove a bus full of nuns off a cliff or whatever, just as kind of like, just as a way, I never took it too seriously. And I always thought, I always thought it was okay to just, you know, be funny, do half of the assignment you're like you're supposed to, and then do whatever you want with the other half. And I would, I would skate, I would skate by usually with the, the teacher wouldn't, wouldn't rake me over the coals too bad. Um, and then one day we had a, um, I think the teacher got the regular teacher. He, he got uh, the rest of the school year. He was out for some surgery or something. So we had a different guy and he started um, <clears throat> reading these essays to the, period after mine you know he'd read them out loud so i would start having kids come up to me in the hallway and being like oh my god they, they read your thing about the kid who went crazy and and killed all the nuns and, and all this stuff <laughs> and and uh i don't know it was just kind of like oh wow people actually kind of like like that that's that was weird um because it was just a thing you do when you're bored when you're a kid and you just say well these these are the rules i'm supposed to follow the rules and kind of fuck them and let's try to have some fun and skate by and get a c or a b minus <laughs> that's okay and it turned into something that uh, I was kind of like, oh, all right. Uh, I'm surprised that people like to read stuff I write. And little by little, it just kept going, I guess. So have you, have you been writing since, since that time, on and off? Yeah, not really so much. Back, back then in middle school, that surprised me. Um, and I was really interested in playing music and writing music and playing in bands and stuff. And I did that for, for a while. Um, all uh, up until my early twenties when we all started just getting into heavier drugs and, uh, band members started dying. And I remember the night when my drummer in the band at the time, he invited me to this party and I happened to be seeing this, this woman who was a, uh, who was straight edge. And I was like, ah, oh, I can't take her to the, you know, 
uh, pill party. Oh, well, you know, so all right, I'll see you on the next one. And, and he went off uh, to the party and overdosed. But um, that night, when I was loading the uh, equipment equipment back into the into the my pickup truck at the end of the night, I used the bathroom at the bar, and uh, it was full of. It looked like religious tracks. It looked like Jesus pamphlets were stuffed in the toilet. And I went to the bartender and I, I said there, you know, what was up with the toilet? And she said, it's actually, uh, the locals do that. They hate these poets that come in here. They give out these zines. And it was just this zine called the idiom. These guys from central New Jersey, they used to show up at like happy hour and like just infiltrate the bar and start and start reading doing spoken word performances and just piss off all the the guys that worked <laughs> at the warehouses and stuff in the area and then they would they would read all these poems and they would throw the magazines on the on the bar and leave so they, these guys would get drunk and then they would just stuff them in the toilets and stuff and i happened to find one um this night from the bartender she gave it to me i went home and got the news the next day that my, my drummer had uh my drummer my dear friend had overdosed and died and uh, no more music after that, you know? It was kind of like, well, I'm, I'm, I think I'm kind of, my heart's out of it now. And um, I had the zine and I looked at it and, and I said, well, I don't know, what am I gonna do now? So I, I wound up sending a poem to the, uh, the toilet zine. I figured out what, you know, what, what, could, go, what could go wrong. And um, so those guys wound up, I didn't know they were doing this, but they, they took all the submissions they had that month and they went around to bars, like I said, and they would just show up at happy hour and like read the things out loud. And uh, one way or another, uh, the patrons would, you know, clap the loudest for the, for the submissions you like the most. And I'd written this poem about my video store burning down and how it was a really great thing for me because I owed them all this money. And they um, wound up winning a $75 prize and they, they mailed it to me and showed up to my apartment. I just moved to New York City and I got this envelope with $75 in it for a poem. And I was like, all right, I guess I'll, I guess I'll just be a professional poet now and, and I'll just make all yeah. my, I'll make a killing you know, $75. <laughs> but it only took me 20 minutes to write this $75 poem. This is, this is a good living. I'll just keep doing this. <laughs> keep doing that and buy that house in the Catskills. Buy the house in the Catskills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's always been kind of, for me, it's always been fun and um, trying to do something strange and unusual and add, add to um, the joy of life, but also, you know, focus in on those, those painful fucked up things that you encounter along the way and try to bleed them into the art. So there's just like anything in life, when you have a really good conversation with somebody, there's that element of, you know, they're trying to make you laugh. They're trying to make you laugh. So, so when you have to cry about it, it's, it's not as bad. That's, that's my approach generally, I think. I know you've written from an autobiographical perspective, and I just, I wanted to talk to you about how much of your fiction is autobiographical. You know, do you pretty much draw entirely from, from your day to day and your past or, or how do you, how do you approach a new work? Well, all I, all I ever do for anything that people probably have read of mine published, um, it's been something I've become obsessed with. Um, whatever the topic is, if it's an autobiographical, thing from my life that I, I want, I want to spend countless hours writing and rewriting and then, you know, editing the rewriting, rewritten things. Uh, it's gotta be something that I'm just completely obsessed with. If it's something, and like I said, I could even start out as just like a little, a little casual, you know, bit of comedy and a joke, like an absurd thing. But I, ha I have to, I have to then look at the absurd thing and, and really break it down past its, past its logical endpoint to go farther, to go farther into it usually. Now, I mean, that's easy enough to say about a story like Tiger Blood, like, okay, you know, you're on a date with somebody and they say a wacky thing, okay? And now, ha ha, you know, I was on a date and I, you know, this person was crazy, you know, but to like, to go farther with it and investigate it. And that, that's where, where I kind of eventually get to a point where I'm like, you know, what's the, what's the irreality behind the reality of it? Um, with autobiographical work, if I'm writing about my day job and I'm writing about my, my work in heavy construction or my marriage or my family or the city I live in, um, it's usually got to be something that I am so, I'm so just, it's, it's on my mind for a long time before I write it down. I'm thinking about it. I'm dissecting it. Um, like for instance, um, I guess I just wrote a story recently 
um, where I just texted it to myself on my phone, but I, but I had been writing it in my mind for um, many years, thinking about it, thinking about the, um, the premise and how it was going to, how it was going to, how it was going to go down and lines of it um, where I could almost, I know it almost could be like, I could almost close my eyes and have a dream of it, you know, um, and not to ever make anything pretentious or nothing like that. But sometimes I think um, a story is written a long time before you sit down and actually write it. You know, you can almost, you can almost have like a, a waking dream of it for a long time. And certainly fiction is that in one way, but memoir and nonfiction is that in another way too. Um, before I'll sit down and write down a, a personal anecdote, I'll have told that anecdote to probably hundreds of people. And it's almost like I'll write it down as a way to, okay, I don't want to tell this story anymore to people in bars. I'm going to write it down. I'm going to put it in this book. And, and then I'm going to hopefully retire my wife having to listen to me say the story again and again and again and again to this, to different people, but she's always there, you know? And then if it's a, and it sounds like a bullshit story, you know, usually she's there and she'll say, actually this, this did happen, you know, <laughs> which is, it's true and it's untrue because she's heard the story so many times that she probably remembers the, you know, she remembers the bullshit as truth. She's been brainwashed too. The, the latest um, version. Yeah. Yes. The latest revision of the, of the real life true story that happened to you. It's, it's funny, you know, your, your mind will play tricks on you uh, constantly with, you know, what really did, did this legendary thing really happen to you? I have no idea. I don't remember, you know, uh, maybe it happened to a friend, but you, you tell it enough that slowly you become the, the, uh, it's the, the narrator. It's somebody telling your own story, you know, it happens yeah. a lot on the job. We'll be on, we'll be on a, a construction job and there'll be a crew of me and like four or five other guys. And we'll be doing some kind of, some kind of job, something, it's usually when something bad happens, you know, then everybody remembers it. Oh, I was there in this and then you're like, you were not on that. You weren't even in, in the quote unquote business at that point. You, know? <laughs> you, you remember in the story told by, this person or that person, you weren't, you weren't there. We've had, uh, we've had a lot of times when something, something kind of wild has happened at work and um, I'll come in like the trailer and um, somebody will be telling, there'll be like a new guy who showed up, you know, and you'll have the person telling the story um, is like a known bad storyteller. They're, they're boring or they're, they're not, they're not focusing on the, the interesting part of what really happened. You have to stop them. You know, you have to say, listen, Mike, just stop, <laughs> stop. Do not tell this story. Do not tell the story. And then you look at Todd and say, Todd, please tell this guy what, what happened. You, you know, you were there and you're a good storyteller. And then the thing comes to life. It's never the people think it's the details, but it's not the details. It's how, it's how you, how you relay the information. How many books have been written about Jesus Christ, you know, true or untrue story, whatever you believe they they're boring as hell. You know, but then you'll yep. read that thousandth version of it where you're like, oh, wow, turns out Jesus has a really cool story. You know, it just so happens this person is the person to write it down. You know, I, a long time ago, I had a Twitter interaction with you uh, as somebody who works a full time job. And I, I know you talk about, you know, your job on, on all the interview circuits. But I, I you said something along the lines of I work 40 hours a week in heavy construction and the rest of my time I, I do solely what it is that I love, uh, in this case, in your case, writing. So I'd love to talk more about the nature of your job. And, you know, I've, I've read interviews where you talk about, you know, writing on phones or, or any way possible during lunch. Uh, and I think a lot of people struggle to kind of find that time and motivation, but, but you, um, you've got a system. Well, I got a system that fails all the time constantly um you know it's one of these things you flip it through the tv channels and like you know here's the self-help guru uh telling you you know if you just if you do this you're gonna you're it's all gonna work out for you writing and making art painting making music luckily there's no no right way to do it and there's never a golden shortcut and it's all inspiration and labor um you don't need a whole lot of labor and you only need a little bit of inspiration, but um, it does it does work out if you want to do it. Um, you can do it. I really believe that. 
success in the arts is not measurable. Uh, right. I, don't know what's, I don't know what success in the arts is. I always thought I would be really happy if I had, I had kind of maybe even reached my goals in middle school. Like I said, when the kids in the hallway liked to hear my stories, that was, that was it. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's okay. That's fine. Um, and I remember the first time I wrote a, first time I decided I was about 20 years old and I decided I was going to write a novel. And I remember just being like the, not the happiest I've ever been, but like, I was so, I was like, this is just, I'm so excited. I'm going to do this thing, you know? And I remember that winter just sitting down at the computer and like doing it and uh, didn't know what was right or wrong. I had probably only read maybe 25 books at that point. Um, It didn't really matter. It was like, okay, I'm just going to make this thing and we'll see what happens. And by the time I was done with it, um, I just called it done and I was happy. And the idea of showing it to another person or sending it out seemed like the most ridiculous thing in the world. (laughs) I didn't have any friends who even read books. Uh, My parents had read in the, maybe in the early eighties, but once cable TV got cheaper and VHS came out, they, they had, they stopped reading. I didn't have any, I didn't have anybody I knew who uh, would even be interested. So I was just, I was happy. And um, it went like that with the second book too, you know, and then, you know, write another one, have no intentions ever doing anything with it. And um, realizing at the, at the end of that one, I'd have to learn how to edit now. Yeah, and yeah. It, it got to the point where it was like, well, I know it's going to be really hard to, to learn how to edit. So I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to stop now. You know, I think I'm going to quit. Uh, I wrote two books. I'm happy. Um, that's it, you know, but it just got, it got to be this, this thing where uh, after a year or two of that, I was like, well, what if I like studied and asked some questions and kind of kept going. It's like driven by just the passion and the challenge of it. Uh, never thinking I could ever really do anything um, bigger than just have a, a really life affirming hobby with it, which is all it's ever been for me. And um, yeah, eventually um, around the time I was, I was going to have to learn how to edit. I wound up um, working more and more in heavy construction. So I had a job where I would get dispatched all around the state and I would weld in like power plants. Um, I would build, I would do construction jobs, building uh, pollution control on, on um, a big power plant in the, the city I live in now, Jersey City, um, you know, like a year-long job, um, just adding adding on to what was existing in the plants, making it more environmentally friendly. Mm. And um, when I was on that job, uh, I started it started bothering me more and more that I wanted to I wanted to write these these stories I had in my mind down. And I was away from my, my desk at home a lot. And I was, it was that kind of job too, where you couldn't, I couldn't have like a, no, like a little notebook where I could be sitting in the lunch trailer, like writing in my, writing down in longhand because the guys would be like, Oh, are you writing in your diary? <laughs> and then they would take it and they would, they would like either read it out loud or they'd rip it up and throw it out. Or, you know, they were, they, it was just one of those things where it was like, okay, maybe I would have written, uh, I would have written down like a little notebook, like a normal human, but it got to be where, you know, right around this time, iPhones, iPhones had come out and people were suddenly all staring at their phones, you know? So I was like, well, all right, I guess I'll, I, I guess I can, I can write this on my phone. Why not? It's a supercomputer I carry around in my pocket. So I just started writing, trying to write 1200 words a day um, in the notes app of the phone. And, uh, I would usually try to write 1200 words and I would hardly ever hit the 1200 words. I would write like a little bit on my coffee break and I would write a little bit on my lunch break. And then at the end of the day, the guys I worked with would all pile up at the turnstiles to fight, to fight, to get out the turnstile, then to fight the traffic out the gate to try to race through town to get to the turnpike. And it would just be a traffic jam where we could punch out at three 30 and everybody would rush to the gate and stand in this line. And then they would fight to get out of the parking lot. And I noticed that if I just sat in the trailer, I had an extra 25 minutes of 
not free time. It's just time I made better use of mm -hmm. to, for working on my, what I wanted to do instead of just doing this annoying thing of fighting the line. I just, I took that time and I turned it into creative time. And once I started doing that, I saw all kinds of opportunities to do that in my like regular day. Things I, things I could just be like, you know, Oh, I would normally do this now, but instead let me, let me find a way to, to refocus that into something I really want to do. And once I had a smartphone, it was really easy because certainly I can write in the notes app or a lot of times I could, I, I have found over the years that if I have like a really quick idea, like a quick idea for a paragraph, I could just text it to myself. And, you know, later on, I just take those texts and I put them in a, I put them in a file. Um, and then I, and then it becomes the bones of something I'm going to work further on. Um, but that, that's how, that's how I really took work in construction and, and creativity and, and mesh the two. I just found ways to, instead of, uh, sitting around complaining with all my coworkers about politics or, you know, what was on or the football game, you know, because mm -hmm. there's plenty of time to have social interactions while you're working uh, at break, break time. It's just bitching, you know? <laughs> eating and bitching. I was like, I think I, I think I can make better use of this time. And that was, that's just been my, uh, that's been my method with it really. Um, <clears throat> And it's changed a lot over the years um, from just that to being kind of like, you know, uh, I'm always, I'm always around my phone and I'm always around, especially in quarantine now, always around my computer. Uh, I've been teaching uh, workshops out of my apartment for a little while now, writing workshops and they're, they're cool. They're really great. I really like doing them in person and they've become Zoom now, mm -hmm. which I like a lot too probably maybe a little bit more. But my thing is, if I can find a way to get away from my computer in some way, I can, I can be, a, I can be a little more focused on just the one task. Um, so if I have, if I have no other choice than to write on my cell phone, I'm going to do that. Mm -hmm. And if I have the choice of writing only on my laptop, as opposed to the cell phone, I'm going to do that. And then, but then if I really get what I want, I'm, I'm going to write on my typewriter because I can, I can be completely disconnected from everything. And a lot of times what I'll do is I will take the, the stuff I read on the cell phone as like a rough first draft of a bunch of ideas. I'll assemble it into a word document and I'll print it out on my printer at home. And then I take those few pages I have and I'll sit down at the typewriter and I will retype what I assembled from text messages and notes apps and tinkering around on the laptop and I'll retype it top to bottom, improvising the whole way on the typewriter. That's just a way to develop and hopefully enhance uh, what I started out with. Yeah. It sounds like a very smooth process. What is, is, is I've, I've heard other writers who have either kept with the typewriter or gone back to it, describe it as a kind of special, uh, experience. What is it about writing on a typewriter that just, you know, do you get a, a sense that it just kind of feels almost like, you know, spiritually different to write on a typewriter than, than on a computer? I like the limits of things. I like, I like having things have one job. You know, I like machines that are, are special for one thing. Um, construction's a lot like that. We'll have like just really specialized tools and equipment that is for one thing. And I love when I'm doing a certain type of welding job, I need an exact machine that's perfect for doing that. Um, typewriters certainly are like perfect for writing. They don't do anything else. I like that they don't do anything else. It's certainly not that they write better than a, you can, I'm not saying you do better work on a typewriter or on a laptop or on your cell phone or writing longhand. But what I do like about writing on a typewriter is first of all, it's physical. It's physical in a way. I have to, I have to sit. I have to sit at the the machine, and, and I'm like working with it. It's labor. I do like I do like writing, feeling like labor. Um, when I'm doing labor, I find that I get lost in the flow of it more than when uh, there's some physicality to the work. Um, it's always been like that. Some of the happiest jobs I've ever had were just digging holes with a shovel. Uh, a lot of times sitting at a typewriter, I feel like I'm digging myself a big hole 
um, with the story. And I do like that I, the thing dings and tells me, okay, it's on for a new line. And I get to the bottom of the page, I'm typing, and all of a sudden I hit the, I hit the carriage return and the page pops up and I flip the damn thing over. And, and it's, it's like I'm making, I can see the progress too. Um, recently, um, I've had, uh, I've had a few, a few revelations just with the, my, what work of mine people like more. And I've, whenever I, I hear back from a bunch of people, oh, this, this story really resonated with me. I've just noticed throughout the last few years since I've been working on the typewriter, those stories are always the ones that I've retyped a few times. Uh, the, I've spent more time on, I've gone through different, um, done more labor and had more inspiration with through going through it again. Um, so just from, for right now, you know, it's, it's going to change life. You're, there's only one constant thing for us all is we're all going to change through life and how we do our work. But right now um, I've noticed that the stories that seem to connect the most with people are the ones I've spent the time with and have sat down and, you know, retype the thing for the fourth time on the typewriter, improvising as I go. So I'm sticking with it for right now. I had recently, I had a, I had a novel draft I thought was pretty good. And uh, my wife asked me if I'd read it to her. And I was like, oh man, you really want me to read you a whole novel? <laughs> you really want me to read you a whole novel? And she was, we were under quarantine and, and we, we had so much time together. And it seemed like, something that would be fun to do each night. Um, she thought <laughs> I would never, ever ask somebody to listen to me read a whole novel, but she asked if I would read her um, a chunk of it each night. And we figured out, okay, well, the thing is like 65,000 words. Um, we can read it over the course of 14 days. Uh, and I'll read you, I don't know, 5,000 words a night. What is that? Like 20 pages a night, you know? This is what we settled on. And then, so the idea then became, all right, so I, I said, well, I'm gonna read this out loud to you, then you gotta, you gotta give me something back. Cause it's not doing anything for me to read it out loud to you. You know, I'm, I'm reading you a bedtime story each night. And <laughs> it just so happens it's my story I'm reading you a bedtime story of. But I was like, can you at least tell me the parts you don't like? Cause then when I do the next draft, I'll, I'll at least have something to go by. You know, I can, uh, I can know, oh, these 10 pages were stupid. Just to, of course, don't, yeah. don't bother editing those ones, just delete them. So, um, <clears throat> so what, what happened was each night around, let's say seven o'clock, we'd sit down and I'd read these 20 pages out loud to her. And then as soon as I was done reading, you know, we'd have a beer or two and she would tell me, okay, so this, this character it was kind of stupid and this is why I, I this part kind of didn't seem like it belonged there and then what i would do i didn't have a job to go to the next day it was like my first experience being a like quote unquote full-time writer only because of coronavirus mm -hmm. you know? i would take the five thousand words that i had read to her the previous night and i would um retype it on the typewriter every night we did this for um i think we did it for 16 days Wow. We were done. So I retyped the, retyped the whole novel in 16 days and then um, waited about a week. I waited 10 more days after that. And then I retyped it again. I retyped it back into the laptop from there. I had the typewritten pages where I would just sit down and every day I would have, I would try to retype 20 of them. Um, and usually I would get close. I would never go farther than the 20. And, uh, as I was retyping, I would be reworking, you know, clarifying and mm -hmm. taking her, taking her notes, taking what I also felt and trying to, trying to do something cooler with it. And always thinking about these drafts is like, oh, this is the 11th hour on this. I'm so happy I get to do this now again. You know, that's always been the greatest thing with doing these edits after all these years of just getting more and more comfortable of the misery of, of it is finding some way to have it be like a sneaky thing. Like, oh, cool, this, this story wasn't as good as I thought it was. And now I have this chance to make it interesting. And thank God I had this 11th hour right now doing yeah. it. Yeah. And just send it, send it to whoever I'm sending it off to. And hopefully they, uh, 
appreciate it, but you know, it's usually with a publisher or, or an editor at a, a journal or a press or whatever it's going to be. It's like, they might say, Oh, this is cool. But what if we did this? And then that means going through the whole thing from top and bottom again. And luckily it's what I like to do. I've, I've quit everything that's annoyed me. Everything that has irritated me in life. I don't do it anymore. <laughs> it's like, that's uh, a I great philosophy. It's hard. Yeah. You, you have to, you have to arrange your life in a way that's, you know, you can have a lot less than you could have if you suffered all the irritating things that would give you more money probably is usually what it is. But, um, yeah, I've just found, I found, well, I'm not going to do that thing because that seems that I'm going to have a, a even more miserable life doing that than if I didn't do it. And, um, luckily I'll, I'll only be here until I'm about 80 years old. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so even if my life's a little shitty, I'll only have to endure it now for another forty more years, hopefully. <laughs> um, you know. <laughs> well, well, you you seem to be doing it right. You seem to be genuinely enjoying your your time here. So um, it's 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 good to hear somebody who's so positive about the process. And and uh, do you have anybody? So, so is your wife a writer? Um, no, she's the best editor I know. Yeah, pretty editor. much her. Um, I would say the best editors I know are uh, Ray Belleri, who I'm married to, uh, Jean Carlo at Tyrant Books, Joseph Grantham, who does Nervous Breakdown. They're just like best, you know? Yeah. You give them, you give them, you give them a story and, and then they, you know, they just, they come back at you with like a whole nother side of the coin. Um, my wife was never, she's not, not she doesn't really write too much, but uh, she, sat through a couple of workshops in my apartment, you know, her apartment too. And she would hear all the students talk to each other about their work. And then I remember after like the second or third one, she was like, that's all it is. That's all they just, they just say what they like and they say what they don't like. And I'm like, yeah, that's all it is. But the problem <laughs> is a lot of people will not say what they really like and will not say what they really don't like because you know, they don't want to hurt anyone's feelings or they, they want to, they want to be seen as a certain way. But, um, if, if, you're the, if you're the type of person who can just give, man, it's all you have to do is speak from the heart. And if you do that, you're really going to connect with people. But um, it's hard to do. Sometimes I found I don't have a, I don't have any experience um, taking writing classes. Um, but what I've seen with being in a workshop setting, listening to what people say, um, you know, if they're going to talk about what's good in a piece, uh, it would have to be. I really like this part of it and here's how I think I, I, I would like it even more if you leaned into it. You know, this is what I think you were doing the best in this piece. And it does sound a little bit like criticism, like, you know, Hey, I think there's three things happening in the story and these two are the really interesting ones because I really connected with them. You know, um, sometimes I feel like artists overcomplicate everything. They think that if you make things, if you make four or five things happen and all at once we'll be distracted and, and tie it all together and it'll, it'll, it'll mean more. Um, our, our, our brains will decipher the jumble of, you know, all this shit thrown on the page or thrown mm -hmm. at a canvas or, you know, but in general, if you look at a great piece of art, it's usually pretty focused. Yeah. Simplicity. You know, sp yeah. Specific the idiosyncrasies of the, of the work and of the artist. Uh, only they can do it. So if we're going to talk about what we like about someone's work, sometimes it's great just to talk to them about what they do best. You know, mm -hmm. um, we, we all, we all don't realize um, what we do best. And sometimes we try to run from it too. We get pigeonholed as like, like me when you say, you know, with being funny, I've always loved it. You know, people say, Oh, you're funny. Um, your writing's funny. Or like if, I was the guy, if we were all doing acid together or whatever, you know, I would try to make everybody laugh, you know, and it would, and it would work. They would, you know, it was like a, it was the thing. They were happy I was around because I was telling jokes or whatever, you know. So it's mm -hmm. always been, um, if, if I'm going to try to hide from how I naturally am, um, I'm, my work might be a little less effective. Mm -hmm. um, but not to say we all shouldn't try to branch out and do different things because we do grow and change as people. But what you're best at, I would say leave with that. Yeah, I mean, it seems too, to 
part of the process of growth is maybe trying too hard for a while and, and returning to yourself. This summer, you had a story published, Violets, in, in the Paris Review. And I know that was meaningful to you. I, I saw a post you had made on the internet about how you, know, you grew up reading the Paris Review, and this was your first story there. I want, I want to know a little bit about Violets as a story and about the, the process and your reaction to getting published in the Paris Review. Well, my reaction to getting published anywhere is I'm always surprised. Uh, I'm always surprised that any, any, anything does um, gets received uh, just well enough to for anyone to click go on their website on it. Um, and that could be even just, you know, the, I, I'm shocked when my, my town's library reached out to me and said, can you come read at a library event? You know, I'm just like, what, what the hell's going on? <laughs> uh, so whatever it is, I'm always, I'm always just, uh, uh, a little imposter syndrome. I'm always like, Oh man, I think you got, I think you meant Bud Smith, the baseball player, you know, whatever it is. <clears throat> but, yeah, the guy um, who shows up on, on Wikipedia for now. Yeah. Yeah. And so when, with like the Paris review publishing the story, um, when I, when I got, I, I had gotten on an air, I got on an airplane to California right before COVID restrictions. This was like right before, we were all finding out that we were going to be on lockdown. So I'd gotten on an airplane to uh, go see my sister-in-law and the new niece and stuff out in California. And when the plane landed, I, I checked my phone and I was like, oh, this is weird. I get accepted by the Paris Review. I'm, I'm reading the email. I'm not really, I'm like, oh, okay, I guess. It, so they're saying maybe it's going to happen uh, potentially the, the upcoming issue or maybe the one in the, the following issue after that. And uh, details are a little vague. And I was kind of like, oh, this is cool. So this is almost going to happen. This, this, <laughs> this is nice to get this thing where, you know, it could be a thing, uh, you know, just to, just to be happy to be nominated or whatever the, whatever the hell it is. And I figured, you know, oh, it's going to be nice to have a story on their website or whatever, you know. And then uh, little by little, as the details came in, I realized, oh, wow, they're putting it in the print journal. Oh, that's cool. And just kind of oh, the whole time, just always expecting everything to fall through and not really caring because, unfortunately, I really do think it's all a little bit of a joke, um, you know. Just what? Just just the... Uh... Not the Paris Review, but just pub publishing and, like, focusing on, you know, the notches and the little steps we all yeah. are trying to do and if if I'm just going to put myself worth on something like that, um, it's not really, it doesn't, it's not really very helpful for me day to day. Mm -hmm. uh, and especially, you know, going to work, I had this happy thing I'm excited about and I go to work and uh, my coworkers, if I even tell them about it, they're just going to be like, okay, that means, you know, what's that? We don't care. You know, that's stupid. So <laughs> it's just kind of like this personal thing. And then eventually, you know, Put, put the little photograph on the on the internet or whatever and then you know order a copy or two and give give it to my mom yeah that's kind of it of course of course yeah it's, it's huge that's for her though yeah but if you want to talk about the genesis of that story i think it's a little interesting to talk about like how the story came to be from the beginning to the end um there's a little bit of a a little bit of a story that i think is more interesting than the fact that it got published um, anywhere. Um, so what happened was, like I said earlier, you know, it all starts with like a little bit of a joke, you know. I was like, <clears throat> I was staying at a motel down in um, uh, Seaside Park, New Jersey, um, right on the ocean, um, a little bit of a dumpy place. Uh, you can like get a room there pretty cheap and you can walk onto the ocean it's nice though and i'm from down that area but now that i live in up by new york city i take my vacation sometimes in the town i grew up in which is kind of weird <laughs> but anyway vacation uh, so, used uh, loosely there yeah so so we run out this cheap little motel room and i'm just in there and I've, i'm a little drunk and i've had a little too much to drink and um in the sun all day and just like that moment of looking around a motel room where you're like this fucking place is disgusting you know <laughs> how many people yeah. have like 
gotten stabbed here? How many people have like, you know, put out a cigarette in their arm in this room, you know? And here I am. This is where I, this is where I choose to spend my, my free time, you know? So I was just like thinking about, you know, I like this motel, but I wouldn't burn it down, but I, I could, I could see <laughs> who own it, you know, clearing the whole place out, sending it down for the, ins- burning it down for the insurance money and like hitting the reset button and having a developer put up some condos there or something and getting, getting paid off. But, um, and then as soon as I thought it was in my head, I was like, okay, so I should write a story about somebody burning down this motel. You know, it was taking something from, from real life that I thought was interesting and like trying to do something a little cooler with it in fiction. You know, that to me is always the, that's always the reason to write, to write fiction, to, to kind of take something that, that might be interesting in real life and go a little farther and, and uh, a different direction with it, uh, fictionally, fictionally. So, <laughs> so the story started off with this couple who were going to burn down the motel and it started off with, had them like burn down their house for practice. So they just burned their house down as like practice. And then they went to burn down the motel. And then at the end of the story, it was really, it was really short. It was like 800 words. And it was like, they burned down the motel. They have a great time. Um, and then they, they have such a great time. They decide that they're going to go off and burn down uh, like a, a hotel next, a mansion. They're going to burn down all the wonders of the world. They're, they're off. They're going to burn down the great pyramids in Gaza. They're going to burn down the Taj Mahal. They're just going to make this their life's goal. So the story was called Wonders, and it was like about 800 words, and it was fine. Um, and I don't think I, I don't think I submitted it or anything, but I kind of, I had it, and I remember I, I just read it and think about it a little bit. And what always happens with me is I'll have a first draft, and I'll, I'll try to develop it into something a little more in like a next draft. Like when, when I go through it again, like I said, when I sat down in my typewriter now with my printed out pages from working on a cell phone, I might look at it and say, let's ask myself some questions about it. You know, like, okay, so the couple burns their house down for like fun, for like practice. Like, it's fine. But like, why, you know, why would they do that? You know, what, you know, these people just happen to be like agents of chaos out of nowhere. It didn't. It wasn't as interesting to me as if I looked at a little bit more about, okay, so of course they're going to lose the house to the bank or whatever. So they're going to burn the house down to like fuck the bank out of the, out of the house they're going to lose. And then, uh, all right. So they're a little, they're wild dogs and and they're just like radical Buddhists in a way that maybe they've gotten like disillusioned on the property. You know, they're like, no one owns any, we can't own, we don't own anything. Nobody owns anything. So that makes sense to me a little bit more in draft too. Like, okay, so that's why they would like want to burn down the motel. You know, it's such a shitty place. Who cares anyway? But they're going to burn it down because no one owns anything. And so that's what they do. But in in that second draft, too, I think they have to, I'm like developing the characters a little bit. And what you always, what I always try to have them do is talk to people. (laughs) So, you know, now, now there's some other, there's some other characters for them to interact with. And of course, the obvious thing to do is put some people in the motel, right? So when the guy's doing the, he doesn't do the, he just sees his neighbors in in that second draft and he goes and he has an interaction with them. And it's very, um, it's very raw. The the initial interaction is very raw. He just goes into their room. um, They think he's the manager. He ties them up and he drags them into the car, puts them in the trunk and, um, they burn the motel down and they go off to see the other wonders of the world. They're going to burn it all down. That's how the story would end. So the, the couple is saved in a way. Um, the, the, this extraneous couple in the motel saved in a way in the trunk and they're driving away. They're going to be deposited somewhere out of harm's way. <clears throat> so now in the third draft of it, uh, we come through it again. Same method. Now I'm looking at, looking at what I wrote. I'm looking how I can connect the dots, develop it some more. And it starts to be like, all right, so they're going to lose, they're going to lose the house. Um, you know, and I was like, I feel like this, this, this couple, there's something with this couple though. They're, they're like, 
they're drawn closer together than that and just kept ringing in my ears like they have a suicide pact i don't know where that comes from but they had a suicide pact to begin with they're gonna lose the bank they're gonna lose the house to the bank so instead of just killing themselves in the beginning of the story in the backyard like they planned to now they're gonna burn down the house too and then watch the fire the house burn down and then kill themselves so this is the third draft uh, of them doing that and then the surprise that surprised me too um, is just how much they love it, how much they love watching the house burn down and like how it brings joy back to their life in a way and how they're, they're just kind of reborn in a way from it. And so now when they go off to burn down this motel, they're, they're shocked that they didn't get caught and they're shocked that they're still, they're still around and alive and okay, well, day by day, but we had so much fun burning the house down. Now we're going to burn the motel down. So, <clears throat> so by having them now at the motel, it just made sense to me for once I, once I got the characters talking more too, it's like they're, they're kind people in a way. So go, go do a sweep of the whole motel, make sure there's nobody else in it. And then now we find um, um, a young girl passed out in, in her room with like a purple bicycle in the bed next to her and, you know, wake her up, hey, I'm going to burn this place down. And, and she leaves. And now he ha they, they still have the interactions with the, with, the, with the other couple in the room. But things are like, uh, things are like more developed now. So it's like the guy's been watching them carrying things back and forth to the room, you know. And, and I, start to, I start to wonder like what, think of things like what, what are they carrying back and forth? But I don't get to that in this draft. I just have them they're still really rough with, with this couple in this draft, right? They're just, they come in the room and they're like, you know, zip tie them, throw them in the trunk. They go to leave. It's not until that following draft that I finally start to ask myself, like, why not, why are these arsonists being so shitty? Like for, for the, to these people, you know, and it gets to be, it gets to, you have to, I ask myself questions like that, you know, like, you have to be like a fucked up person to burn down a place. Yeah, I guess. But do you need to be like Hitler too? Right. I mean, you're just, you're an arsonist. You're not shooting people in the head. You're, you're taking the time to make sure that nobody's going to burn alive in this place. Mm -hmm. So they start being kind to the people in the room. They're still going to tie them up and they're still going to do it. They're, they're talking to them now. They're, they're, they're opening up a, a line of communication. And then as soon as you open up to a person, you find out interesting things about them. Um, and they find out that these people are on their way to a puzzle, a puzzle event in an airfield in New Mexico, I think it was. And here they do, they uncover this new like level of wonder in the story. Like, what is this? You're, you have part of a million piece puzzle in these crates and you're on your way to find, you don't even know what the puzzle is. Um, it just, uh, it, uh, by investigating and having people, care about each other and have empathy in a story all you do is find out more about the characters right if i'm just like you know certainly sometimes i do just want to write you know fuck the world mm -hmm. i don't care about anything i just care about these characters versus the world you're going to get a very small picture of the world by writing that kind of story and sometimes that's the best story you can ever write but every once in a while i found that if i just have people care about what's happening around them and, and ask questions um, and be interested, then interesting things develop in the story in subsequent drafts. And that's all it really is. It's just kind of going a little farther than I'm comfortable with. And eventually, um, you know, and certainly um, with that story too, before it was ever submitted around, I, I had a, I had a great friend I swapped stories with named Jimmy Cajoles. Who, uh, he gave me some great notes on that story. I gave him some hopefully great notes on his. And it's just being open to to swap work with friends and um, be um, radical in mm -hmm. your suggestions and radical in your 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 you know your notes on re-envisioning the thing because sometimes someone will tell you something that is so far from what you need to hear that all it does is it triggers something in my mind anyway where I'm like man, this, not, not to say this was the case with Jimmy Cajoles because he's brilliant, but sometimes someone will say, oh, you should do this. And I'll be like, man, this person is so fucking wrong. They couldn't <laughs> be more wrong if they tried, but what it does is it opens up another little door where I'm like, 
well, that's wrong. And what's the opposite of that? And I'll do that. Mm-hmm. And I'll follow more of my, my own path in a stranger way into the work. But um, every once in a while, a friend will just say something like, why are these characters such assholes? And then you're just like, damn, Jimmy, I don't know. That's a great why question, Jimmy. <laughs> Jimmy, you're right. And then you start looking at all the fucked up things they're doing for no reason. Mm-hmm. And um, my, one of the things I found in life, I'm not, I'm, I'm a, I think I'm a friendly person, but I'm not naturally social. I'm a little social, but I'm, I'm not naturally gregarious. You know, I might certainly if you know, we're around and we'll, we'll talk, we'll have fun, but I'm not really always the person who's just going to strike up a conversation with the clerk, you know? Like, hey, what's the good place to get pizza around? You know, I'm just going to be like, kind of observe and like think about what's going on and mostly mind my own business, but like ask some questions when I'm really interested in something. Mm-hmm. But um, I found that um, with with writing, um, the thing that's helped me the most is as being that way of going out of my comfort zone and talking to people who I normally wouldn't talk to. And because I think I, I shouldn't be talking to them or it's it's just like as soon as you start asking questions of everybody around you in real life you're going to find out what the world really is around you you know certainly traveling when i can mm-hmm. with the you know limited amount of money i have but you know even like now just going on a drive a few hours away from where i live and getting into small towns and seeing strange things and talking to people who are different than me but not that different um you can get an hour and a half away from where you live and you're on another planet um Certainly when you're, when you're from the tri-state area too. Yeah. yeah. Those things are endlessly helpful um, with life and things attached to life, which is art and your day job. Yeah. And other people. Um, I, I, I find violets to be beautiful and I can't wait to read more of your work. I, I really admired the scene where the motel goes up in smoke and the, the fire is green and they're thinking about all the things that might be burning uh, the history of the motel. And, and the way that you developed every character in there, I mean, to, to really feel for that couple from the Great Lakes uh, and know that they had, you know, w- with their motivation to complete this puzzle, that they, it, it really does make them feel like real people. Uh, it's a very moving story. And in, in characteristic style, funny along the way. Here's the thing with um, writing characters, I think, that helps me. Um, it doesn't happen right away. Like I said, like sometimes I'll have to do, I'll do many, many drafts, but as I'm doing the drafts, um, it gets to the point where I think of myself, if I was in the horrible position of being the director of this film, you know, and I want the, I want the best actors I could possibly get to play every role in this film. But the problem is, uh, the best actors in the world are not going to play a part where there's not some chance of them getting acclaimed for for what they can bring to the role, right? And if I'm if I'm writing like uh, characters who are just sketches, sometimes I think that works fine. But I just picture like having you know uh, to be in the terrible position of having Dustin Hoffman sitting in the chair and me being like, here's why you want to play the fat puzzler guy. <laughs> You know, or, you know, Meryl Streep's there and I'm like trying to talk her into being the junkie in the bedroom, whatever it is. Like, you know, you have, for me anyway, I'm like, I feel more confident when I've written a character in a way where I could have those ridiculous people in that ridiculous room with me and I could sell them on the fact that they could, they would want to play this part, uh, which I think is not critical for fiction, but that's how I, that's how I look at it. Yeah. Well, so what's, uh, what do you got in the, in the works now? Right now, um, I'm working on um, the collection of stories that Violets is part of. Uh, I, I had, I've been writing a story a month for it. They're all, they're all in the same family, these stories. They're, um, they're realism um, with a little bit of wonderment to them. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, mostly in the same same vein, like five, six, seven, eight thousand word short stories. I try to think of classic styled uh, short stories that I, I had gotten in um, such a like a really great 
don't want to say rut, but like, I felt like I had trained myself to write 1200 word short stories for the internet for a while. You know, like I read Tiger Blood earlier, like those, those really compact, slightly fleshed out flash fiction stories where, yeah. you know, they happen right, they happen right before the end of the story. Or, you know, there's not really a, a series of things that go right or wrong and then lead to, you know, they're, they're flash, they're flashes. Right. right. I was thinking to myself, uh, I really want to try to write in a different form. So I started writing these longer ones. And uh, that's been great. So um, in December, I'm going to call, I'm going to call that 12th story, the final one. And then um, I'll send it around, I guess. And uh, I've been, I've been working on um, a novel called No Thanks, which is about my, uh, uh, about my, it's autobiographical in a way that's, I look at it as like the, the kind of like the continuation of uh, my memoir work. In a way, it's a lot about my my job and my relationship with my wife and where we live and and how we live. Um, so an autobiographical novel that's kind of in my mind the, se- the sequel to a memoir that's uh, out of print right now. Anyway, so but I did hear work is coming out in uh, Korea. Oh, great! Cool. That's that's yeah, that's yeah. I think they're starting to get translated. Uh, Korea and I think Turkey is maybe translating it. So and I think that's Congrats, pretty cool. That's too, fantastic. Like having having uh, stuff that's out of print in America coming out in other countries. <laughs> that's exciting for me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. Nice. Well, well, um, you know, I hope once all this nonsense is over uh, and we get a nice vaccine and everything's back to normal, uh, you know, you can come out and and do a reading or two. I'd love to see you, you know, read some of these stories that they they I don't know what your relationship relationship is with, with standup, standup comedy, but I could see them doing really well in a room. Uh, I love to, to read. I I write stories with the purpose of reading them out loud. I, I, that's how I edit too. I write them. um, I write them in a way to be, to be focused enough that people, even with a couple of drinks in them, hopefully can (laughs) follow along in a bar and, and listen to me. And, um, for the longest time, that's um, that's how I've written my my prose is, is written that way. So, and it seems like it's a little dumbed down. It's because it's written for people a little drunk. And <laughs> <laughs> well, it's perfect for me. So you know, I don't know what that says about me, but I I, uh, I love it. I've got Double Bird in route, so I'm excited to to start. And you know, I'm I'm already you know a huge fan from the the week of of things. I've been reading that, that you put up there on neutral spaces, which, which honestly I wasn't even familiar with, but it seems like a great, great medium there to get, get your work out. Um, yeah. Neutral spaces is cool. Anybody can write to them and, and, and they'll make you a little site where they'll collect your, their, your work. Just, uh, and people can certainly write to the, to uh, Giacomo who runs there and they'll just let you put things up on their site. Like a, like a, um, they call it a blog. It's a blog. Yeah. But um, it kind of harkens back a little bit to what I used to think was cool about the internet in 2005 and six and seven. Um, a little bit more slapdash and mm-hmm. everybody has access to it. Not um, everything's yeah. about monetization. Certainly there's no money in anything anyway, yeah. but <laughs> it's, there's no gatekeeper for it. Yeah. Uh, that being said, I don't put my writing on that website. Um, I, I do like to submit my stuff around and be told no. <laughs> if, someone tells me, if somebody tells me I have an automatic yes, I'm, I'm, I'm usually like, oh, I don't know. Then maybe I should <laughs> only because I guess I like to be told no for a while before. Cause I've, I've found that I'm usually pretty sure of something and I'll be like, I'll send it off and I'll be like, oh, well, that's probably going to be a go. And then like 30 rejections later on it, I've, figured out how it should be anyway and i've rewritten it seven or eight or nine times and now i'm through being told no i think it usually has become the best it can be but um yeah. i certainly wouldn't do that if, if i didn't enjoy the suffering of it i guess um, the suffering of writing <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like uh you know um it's a perfect fit for me i think anybody who really really hates doing any kind of art form it might not be the one for you but the good news is there's plenty of other ones 
you know mm-hmm. i used to really really want to be a painter i really wanted to direct films i really wanted to um do all kinds of things you know be more of a professional photographer in a way uh, i've just always been interested in, in creative outlets but through trial and error with like what is actually involved in learning how to do the thing the best you can do pick the one that you get the most joy out of but also the one that is the best fit for you uh meaning you're willing to spend the time with it to to get the most out of it uh if if you're like me some people are really happy just being your jack of all trades and just doing whatever but i've always been you know i only have so much time my time is finite so i want to pick the thing that is the best for me and spend my time learning not to master it because i'll never do that but to get the farthest i can with the medium of it.